we definitely see a role for big businesses to um, provide space for parallel um, innovation from these small guys, these disruptors. It's really encouraging that the sustainable development agenda has probably never been more mainstream. It's important to separate the passion that we do have for the topic with pragmatism and realism that being sustainable in what we do makes business sense now. Sustainability is just what we do as standard practice. You have to strongly believe in what you are going to do and and when things go rough and get difficult, keep on believing in yourself otherwise you won't make it. Hello and welcome back to part two of this special bumper edition of Sustainable Business Covered. I'm Luke Nichols, editor of ED, and I'm back fresh from some lunch in the podcast studio here at our offices in East Grinstead. So in this second part of episode 11 of the show, we talk responsible retail. What you just heard was some excerpts from the interviews we conducted behind the scenes at ED's latest conference, the Responsible Retail Conference, to explore how retailers are adapting to the world of sustainable business. George, Matt, welcome back. Um, both had a bite to eat. Um, feeling ready for round two? Is it feeling replenished, <laughs> primed, peak condition? Good stuff. Okay, well, let's get straight down to it then. So um, now part part one was the George Ogilby show. Uh, saw George speak to a number of experts about the road to zero waste. And now we have part two, which I guess we'll have to call the Matt May show. Uh, and you, Matt, took the trip up to London for our responsible retail conference, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yep. Uh, just off of Old Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, who did you speak to? Um, a lot of people, basically. It'd be easier to tell this who I didn't speak to <laughs> at some point at that event. I got, I got, a, I got around, basically. Um, but in terms of the actual interviews I managed to put together, I've... I've spoken to the delightfully named Heidi Hauff from Forum for the Future. Mm -hmm. Um, She's the principal sustainability advisor there. We had a nice little chat about what Forum for the Future is doing to help retailers out. A lot of interesting stuff on kind of sustainable protein, that kind of aspect. So a bit more kind of further afield. I think Forum for the Future very much sense that a lot of community projects that retailers can get involved in have been ticked off and they're kind of branching out to new horizons. Interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, from that point on, I moved on. I managed to uh, corner Joe Francis um, and wouldn't let him leave until he oh. agreed to speak to me. He's the um, CSR director at Coca-Cola Enterprises, yeah, yeah. which have just undergone a kind of massive revamp, put together a few of the kind of suppliers and bottlers there. So during his speech, he was talking all about um, how kind of SDGs and science-based targets were driving stuff there. Mm. So to get hold of a new company and such a big company as well and talk to them about their plans was really, yeah, really exciting. Awesome. Um, from there, I managed to... Well, I was originally talking to Bert Van Son, but he, he was in high demand there. He was uh, he was very popular amongst the retailers that we were with, which I suppose is a good good thing to see. Mm. Um, he, he promised to come back from... a from an exclusive meeting, which I can say no more about. Okay, and he is, so he's Mud Jeans. He's their founder, yeah. Founder of Mud Jeans. Yeah, okay. so obviously famous for the kind of Lisa Jeans mm. concept, mm. so it yeah, seems like that's taken off. Mm. Um, and then from there, I managed to grab a chat and missed a chicken lunch for it as well, so I hope, <laughs> hope the re- her listeners are appreciative of my uh, sacrifice mm. Um with um, the Sustainable Development Manager at John Lewis, Phil Birch. Okay. And we were very much moving on to the kind of green building um, aspect of it all, which is obviously good timing with what we're doing on the site. It is, yeah. Special kind of green building month. We haven't announced this kind of, I guess, formally on the site. But um, yeah, month-long kind of... We Now we're kind of building in more of a kind of monthly approach to our features um, and editorial content. 
and yeah this week's this month's theme is um, green buildings so look out for some content on that and with that in mind I also I also managed to grab hold of uh, Richard Quartermain who's the environment manager at Hammersons which is a big retailer developer and that was all very much the kind of landlord relationship in regards to energy efficiency in buildings real nice spread then you've got a forum for the future you've got kind of big major companies code enterprises you've got innovators mud jeans you've got retailers retail developers um very interesting good conference generally it was yeah um there was a lot of interactivity going on especially the uh the guy at the front row from is it uh DN, DNV. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very keen to, to ask questions, which is what yeah. you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And stuff like that. But um, the talk was as well, it, it crossed through a wide range from new business models to energy management to literally just being responsible retailers. It was ticking a lot of boxes. Mm, okay. Um, and so considering we have so many interviews here, let's do something a bit different and then let's run them all back to back. Um, that might sound like a mammoth sort of series here, but they are fairly short, five or ten minute chats. Um, so we'll run them, um, I guess, in chronological order, um, in that same order that you read those names out in. So we'll begin with Forum for the Future, then on to Coca-Cola Enterprises, Mud Jeans, John Lewis, and then finally Hammerson. So um, sit back and enjoy these interviews from that Matt conducted at the Responsible Retail Conference in full. I am at ED's Responsible Retail Conference today. Um, it's lunchtime. We've we've had two great sessions on collaboration and transparency in retail and how to really drive change. I've been joined by Heidi Hauf, the Principal Sustainability Advisor for Form of the Future. So Heidi, uh, thank you for delaying your lunch to come and speak to me. How have you found the day so far? Really interesting. I think um, I think the day's been split up into really great themes. And this morning we've seen collaboration and transparency, um, which are uh, key enablers and drivers for sustainability in, in the retail sector, particularly. Um, what's kind of what's kind of going on at the forum? What, what's your big plans? What are you excited about? Um, well, especially in the collaboration space, what's quite exciting is that um, in tea, in protein and in cotton, um, we're at a stage where we're moving the initial diagnosis, the system diagnosis of these areas into work streams around kind of key systemic areas that we want to uh, help shift the system to make it more sustainable. So we're bringing together collaborators around these, um, around these work streams and kicking some of them off in, in the near future. So it's quite exciting. And um, on the topic of, of collaboration, we just sat on, on a panel that you were on about transparency and collaboration. So I suppose my question is, it's a kind of chicken and egg scenario in my mind. Can you truly collaborate with someone if you're not transparent within your own internal and external suppliers? Or can you in, be transparent within suppliers without turning to external help and collaboration? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think actually... I guess my opinion is it doesn't really matter which way you come at it. Um, it's it's a fact uh, and it's increasing transparency, that is. Um, and I think it's a fantastic driver, um, but also, as we've heard from some of the other panel members, it can also be a risk if it's not seen as a driver and addressed in a kind of proactive way. Um, uh, an example of this is just the availability of data, um, open source culture, um, consumer empowerment, the amount of apps that allow consumers to have everything at their fingertips to make decisions. Um, so for retailers, that, that could be a real risk. But if they can, if they uh, embrace that and work with both uh, consumers, but also work 
collaboratively to understand their supply chains. And I think that's one of the hardest things um, I think a lot of consumers don't understand is that collaborate, uh, supply chains are incredibly complex. Um, and really getting an understanding for the entire supply chain, opening it up and then addressing the areas um, that need addressing, whether it be around modern slavery or unsustainable practices, um, you know, livelihoods of farmers, uh, is it's a really exciting opportunity. And I, and I believe it can't be done alone. Um, it's one of the things that Forums do, does now is, is work on these complex issues and convene unusual players, usually different people along the value chain to try and address these, these traceability issues. Um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned consumers, actually. Um, I, I spoke to Caroline Laurie um, before the event who she, for Kingfisher. So she's speaking later on uh, this afternoon. And she kind of said that, you know, price for the consumer is still one of the um, major factors. For the forum, you, you mentioned done work with Waitrose on the kind of protein aspects and um, with a host of companies on cotton. So from your first-hand experience of these collaborations, are there any that are kind of highlighting the benefits of how getting supply chains in order is having a holistic benefit on the consumers and what they're consuming? Yeah, well, so that's a really interesting question. I think that's probably our end goal, to be honest, on some of these work streams that are coming out of the big collaborations. Um, so cotton, one of the work streams is to build demand for sustainable cotton, and that's working with existing initiatives to help work with um, companies like H&M and other companies that are retailing sustainable cotton, but helping the consumer understand um, what that means um, and the price point difference, which actually in a lot of instances isn't that different. Um, but again, there's a kind of link to the demand and therefore, the um, the kind of widespread practice of sustainable cotton through the supply chain. You need people to be buying sustainable cotton for it to become a viable um, option. Um, another take on it is in tea. Um, one of the work streams we're taking forward in tea is uh, to try and uh, lift the value uh spread through the entire and equalizes the value spread throughout the entire um, supply chain Um, and that that doesn't just mean lifting the price point um, because if there's the system is set up in an unequal way then that value is not being passed down through the system Um, but interestingly one of the the workstream we're taking forward is on consumers um, and helping them to understand the quality of tea appreciate the quality of tea maybe pay more for the tea treat it in a slightly different way kind of maybe sexify tea in a certain way which in a country like I'm Australian so in a country like the UK that's a really interesting cultural proposition and, and really starts tapping into how people view tea and value tea in the home and what they're willing to pay what they're willing to kind of find out about their tea and the quality of the tea and also where the tea is produced and, and the kind of conditions of labor and the lives where their tea is produced when they're sitting down having their morning cup of builder's tea. So it's all about kind of conversing a message that, that resonates with them. Um, not so much in the retail space, but I, I'm sure um, in terms of like digitalization for areas like um, transport and um, smart, smartphone devices and stuff, new business models are coming in um, that are really kind of driving it. We've had it in retail, I suppose, with like eBay and Amazon. Um, it's creating consumer behavior where there's where shopping, I suppose, is, is more frequent, but, but less kind of bulky. And there is examples of, I suppose, incumbents getting on board with this. Um, In your opinion, from the work you've done, are incumbents happy with the status quo, uh, the traditional methods allow them to reign supreme, or are they glancing an eye over these kind of new models and digitization and thinking this is something we need to do, not only to, to keep competitive, but also to kind of help with that sustainable supply chain aspect? 
Um, so I think the one the companies that we work with are definitely recognizing the need to embrace and um, and catch up with often uh, some of these emerging technologies and new business models and ways of working. Um, it, it poses an interesting question for an organization like Forum. Um, we do quite a lot of work on innovation um, and. Uh, we definitely see a role for big businesses um, in particular in scaling up some of these innovative ways of working and technologies and, and products and services, um, but also to um, provide space for parallel, I guess, um, innovation from these small guys, these disruptors, so that they can not be engulfed by the mainstream and maybe even challenge from a parallel position some of the some of the incumbent organisations and help shift them rather than being consumed or you know um, taken over by some of the big guys. Um, and... You know, you can. There's various examples, and, and we're soon to put up um, some more uh, collaborable on the um, Forum for the Future website, which helps explain how disruptive activity has helped slowly shift the system um, and move the incumbent businesses. Um, and you know, there's winners and losers in that. But I think uh, the companies we work with definitely recognise that there's a, a role for working with disruptors, and, and um, if it's not in scaling up, um, then it's in learning from what they can do to help support either intra um, entrepreneurship um, or um, support kind of the environment for um, innovation the eco- innovation ecosystem thank you very much for your time and it's been a pleasure talking to you thanks matt okay so um it's just after lunch um a lot of people at the conference have just sat down and and eaten and i've been joined by joe francis the crs director at um, coca-cola european partners um, Joe, thank you for um, agreeing to speak to me so soon after lunch. Um, you were the speaker today, and you mentioned this kind of Coca-Cola European Partners is a new kind of venture for, for the uh, bottling aspect of Coca-Cola. So I was wondering if you could just explain to our listeners how the merger process went. You're a very new company. What, what kind of, what's kind of going on and the reasons why that's happened? Sure, no problem. Thanks. Um, great to join you. So Coca-Cola European Partners, uh, brand new business. Um, many of your um, listeners will be very familiar with Coca-Cola, not necessarily with Coca-Cola European Partners. We sometimes describe ourselves as the, the business behind the bottle. We're actually the world's largest Coca-Cola bottler based on net revenue. We've got about 25,000 employees uh, across 13 countries in Western Europe. The company created as a result of a merger between three separate Coca-Cola bottlers. The Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola bottler in um, Iberia, Spain and Portugal... Um, the Coca-Cola bottler in Germany and um, the Coca-Cola Enterprises business that uh, was responsible for manufacturing, distributing uh, product in northwestern Europe, so France, Great Britain, um, Benelux, Norway and Sweden. And together those geographies now are uh, the key markets for Coca-Cola European partners, um, selling our products to about 300 million people, about 2.5 billion unit cases a year and we've got a a sales force of over 6,000 people and I guess critically 90% of our drinks are produced locally and we aim to keep it that way. And um, in in terms of kind of getting your your feet under the desk and kind of conversing with such a a big star force now how does that kind of go and what kind of in the future are you hoping to embed kind of in regards to sustainability to to help push Coca-Cola's work there? Well we're, we're beginning to have internal conversations as you can imagine around what kind of sustainability commitments and strategy we, we will take. Uh, we certainly know that we're on the right path. We've got um, a huge amount of sustainability practice in each of um, our legacy merger partners and also a really firm foundation. 
Coca-Cola European partners uh, now listed on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index for both Europe um, and DJSI World. So an indication that we are headed in the right direction, but much more importantly, provides a really strong and firm foundation for our new business as we look to the future. We know that as, as we look back, we've, we've done many things quite well in terms of sustainability. Um, all three of the merger partners have performed well, have set uh, different targets, um, often, often stretched targets on key environmental areas. Uh, there's nothing to suggest that that kind of thing won't continue. We're about now to get into a phase very much focused on Western Europe where we'll work in partnership with the Coca-Cola company to define the priorities and, and targets and commitments uh, as we look as we look ahead and that's a that's a really key and exciting piece of work uh, that will begin and I guess at the heart of that will be ensuring that we listen to not just our stakeholders but our customers critically and great to be here today uh, in, in front of a customer audience but also critically our consumers those that those that drink and love our products and um you mentioned in in your kind of presentation you, you touched on the kind of the mega trends and one of the questions brought up was what would be the new things to look out for and the, the answer was we kind of know what the issues are um, at corporate level need tackling and you noted the global goals and the kind of Paris agreement um, obviously it's, it's a year on from the global goals and Theresa May vowed that the UK would ratify by, by the end of the year with, with those in mind I imagine that's something that um, Coco European Partners is paying good attention to in the goal setting um, but in regards to goal setting in general, how how vital is it to to take these ideas on board, set these kind of hairy goals, I believe you call them, as as a means to mobilise the, the new for, uh, new staff force? Well, let me take those two points separately. I think that first of all, in terms of sustainable development generally, it's really encouraging that the sustainable development agenda has probably never been more mainstream clearly a critical agenda for our business. Our business, put simply, doesn't exist without water um, or without agriculture. Uh, So the agenda has never been more central to both our business but also to society in general. The global goals, absolutely, one year old this month, um, they provide the context for the challenges that not just we face but also Many of the the people attending the conference today, many of whom are our big retail customers, the Global Goals provide the operating context and the challenges that we all face. And at the same time, the Paris Climate Agreement provides very clear direction on, on one of the most defining environmental issues of our time. So together, they set a clear framework for sustainable development and for strategies that companies like Coca-Cola European Partners but equally many of our retail customers will be um, thinking about and developing and and one of the things I touched on today is just how critical collaboration and partnership will be in delivering both of those partnership itself is embedded into the global goals via goal 17 partnership for the goals Uh, so there's a lot of things that that both manufacturers like Coca-Cola European Partners and also our retail customers can do in terms of collaboration. And and by the way, on the global goals, worth noting that 
one of the key things that we can all do is to drive awareness of the global goals themselves. They're only a year old, and we must all do as much as we can, both internally and externally, to raise awareness. Your second question really related to uh, big and sometimes known as big, hairy, audacious goals. I think, in my view, big, stretch, ambitious goals certainly do play their part. And I've often applied a test to those goals uh, when organizations seek to set goals that are future future in terms of time and, and the test is really around ensuring that if you're going to do that make sure that those goals are both feasible but also achievable and credible and and, and that's a key test so anything that we set as a new business will almost certainly apply that that test to those goals I do think they have their place because certainly if I think about some of the work that uh, one of our merger partners, Coca-Cola Enterprises, uh, did over the last four to five years in terms of climate change, we initially set what we thought was an ambitious carbon reduction target. Um, At the time, we set a 15% carbon reduction target for our core business operations. Actually, after a few years, we found that we'd quite easily met that. And that led us uh, at the time to set for the old Coca-Cola Enterprises business a a very specific science-based 50% carbon reduction target. And that 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 was one of those big, hairy, audacious goals at the time. And actually, now when we look at what the old CCE business had achieved up to the end of 2015, actually we were were already reaching 40% um, of that target. So now as I look ahead, we've got a very strong platform of goals like that to build upon for the new CCEP business, but critically ensuring that whatever we do do is very much aligned to both customer and consumer expectation and working very closely in conjunction with the Coca-Cola company, our key partner in Western Europe. I'm wary that um, we're about to approach the afternoon session, so um, I'll let you get on your way. But thank you very much again for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. So we're now in the afternoon at the ED um, Responsible Retail Conference. I'm now joined by Bert Van Son, the founder of Mud Jeans. Um, he, he had to disappear um, for a couple of hours for, for a couple of meetings. I'm hoping he'll be able to shed some lines. It sounds very interesting. But uh, but start again. Thank you for agreeing to come back and chat and. I think just to give our, our listeners a bit more information about you, can you just describe Mudjeans and perhaps the, the Lisa Jean service that you run? Yeah, sure. Uh, with Mudjeans, we, we like to make our jeans of organic cotton because obviously in, in the cotton industry, a lot of things go wrong. So less pesticides, less insecticides, less water usage. So that's how we treat our raw material. And uh, the thing is, in the beginning, we thought, okay, this is this is an expensive raw material. It's difficult to get. It's scarce. So why not try to get it back? And then we thought about a, a system of giving consum- consumers an incentive of bringing old jeans back to us, our old jeans. But you can do that with a deposit. You can say, okay, that's what we do now. You can get a 10-euro discount when you bring back your old jeans on a new pair of jeans. But the more disruptive thing that we came up with was uh, why not lease a pair of jeans? And the thought behind that is uh, why own a pair of jeans? Why not go for the performance of the jeans and have that? And is that then good enough? Uh, So we decided to do that. And uh, the funny thing was that it was very much uh, adapted by people. Of 
course not worldwide millions of people, but the early adopters were there. And uh, the second thing which was very healthy for our, co our company was that um, it gave us a lot of media attention. So as a, as a little small brand, that's of course very nice when you do something that has never been done before. We're still the only ones in the world where you can lease a jeans, so that's good. And um, uh, it goes like this, you, you, you pay a, a first amount, it's 20 euros, and then for 12 months, 750. And the 750, we, we, take it, uh, we, we take it every month, and after a year you can decide either to keep your jeans as long as you want, because we don't want to push you into fast fashion, that's not the aim. But uh, you could, if you wish, um, change into a new pair of jeans, and we keep on going then, of course, with the 750 for another year. And uh, what we found, uh, we are doing this now for four years, is that consumers are, are very happy to have the feeling, okay, I can, I can choose for a fresh pair of jeans uh, after a year, which is nice, without having the feeling uh, of, of being pushed by fast fashion or, or by fashion uh, in itself. It, it, it sort of gives them a, a guilt-free uh, feeling of being fashionable, but not at all cost. And um, you mentioned um, kind of consumers are, are on board with it. Uh, I suppose this kind of leasing model, um, servitization kind of falls into it, is, is very well, well suited to the kind of tech industry. Um, yeah. I know a lot of people who lease their cars. Um, I know, you know, the kind of rise of like Netflix, people don't buy DVDs anymore. Yeah. Why is it kind of, why are you the only company in the world that, that leases jeans at the moment? What? Why is there still this reluctance to kind of... Um, lease clothes there's a kind of obsession with keeping it i suppose yeah well first of all on, on the consumer part there's two parts it's, it's on the on the on the brand side and of course on the consumer side on the brand side it's a lot of hassle uh, <laughs> you have to keep up every month you have to you have to do your administration very well it's also an investment because i'm, I'm pre-financing uh, you as a consumer with your jeans for 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 a year so it was also an idea in the beginning to to for instance give uh, students a possibility to, to buy or lease a pair of sustainable, uh, well-made jeans that are normally around 100 euro. And now with 750 a month, you, you also have access to this. So instead of buying a very cheap pair of jeans where you know that, that things must have gone wrong somewhere uh, along the line, uh, now you can, you can, even if you don't have a lot of money, you can still decide to have a good pair of jeans. It's, it's, it's a cup of coffee a month. Uh, okay, it's an expensive cup of coffee, but roughly. Uh, that's that's uh, so the consumer side, but on the, on the brand side, it, it's it, it's a lot of work. It's it's it, you make it yourself not easier, but that's uh, what we want to do. We want to be an example, and we want to do things better uh, at, at all steps of our company. That's why also we are a B Corp. Uh, if you're a B Corp, you also look into uh, how much electricity you use in your office and how you go around with the people that work for your company and all those things. And then also, uh, you look also as a web shop, because a big part of our business is, of course, our web shop. Uh, we know that in the shipping of, of goods that, that you know, the, there's too many uh, small buses driving around. <laughs> also, this has to be solved. We started now with uh, using Repack. Uh, it's, it's a packaging that can be reused for about 30 times. Uh, if you order a pair of jeans from us, you can, uh, you can either use it as a, as a send back for your old pair of jeans, if you want. Or if it's empty, you can fold it as an envelope and send it back to the central uh, repack uh, office where they clean it and uh, we can reuse it again. So that's, that's also something. Uh, that this is really sustainability. It's always looking where you can do things better. Uh, it's, it's not 
one day to the other that you now we are sustainable. It's all kind of little things that you improve and, and keep on improving in the way you do business. Mentioned, I, I tried to grab you after after your talk. You are uh, you kind of inundated with with interest from from some pretty um, well established brands. You, you shot off to a meeting. I'm not sure if you can disclose too much from that meeting or who it was with. But um, how how kind of often are these conversations with with um, kind of companies like that, like more established servicing companies? Of course, we have, we've had now four years of, of struggle and making mistakes and, and, and trying to get there, and it's now finally uh, picking up. We doubled uh, turnover this year, so it's, it's going the right direction, but it's it's hard struggle. We made all the mistakes, and of course, others, bigger ones, would like to learn from that, and I'm, I'm open to, uh, to share this information because uh, I think it will help. You know, we as a small company, we are not going to make that much of an impact today. Of course, we would like to grow and that will help. But it's, of course, better when the bigger companies can make the change into into uh, doing things more smarter and more in a circular way. Uh, so if we can help on that, yeah, why not? And, and, and maybe there will be a connection where we as a brand are also helped by a bigger retailer to grow so, so it's for both sides interesting but no deals yet uh, will come and um, in terms of getting there um, how much to I mean we've had the kind of festival season in the UK recently in, in regards to music and there's been a big growing trend about sustainability yes. in the festivals um, Glastonbury was claimed to be the greenest ever it's, it's obviously London Fashion Week this week yes. um, how can these kind of events play a role in really opening up these new kind of models to, to the masses is there a role that events can play I mean I don't know if you follow London Fashion Week I personally mm-hmm. don't um, you can tell by my, by my cheap suit but uh, <laughs> um, it, <laughs> thank you um, so is there a role for kind of weeks like this to to kind of push the societal agenda because that's what it's about these fashion weeks is about yeah. showing society the latest trends is there a trend for sustainability in fashion I wish there were uh, it's not strong enough yet people are still uh, looking at colors and shapes and materials and, and I, I wish what I brought today is for instance the first sample um, which I'm very proud of with our new uh, denim that comes from Spain with, with uh, the 25% recycled cotton in from our own jeans so that makes me happy but <laughs> they're not going to show this on the fashion week because it's just not but then again uh, the things I just showed in the meeting I had uh, half an hour ago where we had this first jeans with the 25% recycled those buyers are also now suddenly getting very excited by that so that's, that's a good thing and the second thing is that we had a, a pair of jeans the first one that's totally washed with ozone ozone uh, ozone gas does not harm uh, environment uh, you don't use the, the heavy chemicals anymore and the stone wash that damages the cloth and everything so that that's also a, a step forward and the funny thing was that they actually liked the outcome. It looks very fashionable. It's a, it's a new kind of color of blue. Uh, it's all new, and, and that's the great thing when you do something that's totally sustainable, but it also suddenly becomes very fashionable. And that's, that's what we, of course, would like to have, that we don't want to be really seen as a very green and, and uh, sustainable company. We want to be seen as a very hip, uh, moving forward, new com- kind of company. And within that, of course, uh, that our customers know that, okay, this is a very hip, nice, good-fitting pair of jeans, but also the whole story behind this. There's no children been working on these jeans. There's no trash. You can always bring it back to us. Uh, we'll repair it for you. Uh, all that has to uh, is, is then behind the brand. But the, the first most important thing is uh, still, how does my ass look? And uh, do, the fit, do the jeans fit well? 
exactly. And um, I suppose my my last kind of question is, um, as as a founder of, of Mud Jeans, you you mentioned it's been a it's been a, a hard struggle to get you are, but it's been worth it. Yeah. For for anyone kind of listening who perhaps has this concept, this idea, perhaps has a product they can't quite get off the ground. If you had a piece of advice, like an inspirational quote to give them, what would it be? I'm going to demotivate people. <laughs> First of all, you need a lot of money yourself. I was lucky enough to have some, some money in front of mm-hmm. me, which is now all invested in this company. So uh, you have to strongly believe in what you are going to do. And, and when things go rough and get difficult, keep on believing in yourself, otherwise uh, you won't make it. And, and try to get energy from the smaller little things that go right and, and keep that in mind. And like I mentioned this morning, you know, we as a company now, uh, we, we, we are getting to get well. If, if you Google margins or sustainability, sustainability in fashion or circular economy, you, you, you very quickly tend to go to margins, which is, of course, fantastic. But it also means that, that you get a lot of uh, young, motivated, well-educated people that want to do something with your company. They want to help. They want to come do internships. They want to... And, and that, of course, is such an asset because um, uh, yeah, we, we've had uh, interns that, that were just unbelievably good and motivated and helped us a lot. So, um, yeah, it's just keep on believing in what you, what you started and uh, go all the way. Well, um, but I'm, I'm wary now that the, the latest session is about to end, so people will be kind of um, flocking out into the foyer to get some coffee. So yeah. thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. So I've now, um, I've now been joined um, at the conference by Phil Birch, the Sustainable Development Manager at John Lewis. Um, he's just kind of given um, delegates his top 10 tips, um, which, was, uh, which was really, really insightful and, and kind of covered off a lot of the key issues. So, John, again, thank you for um, agreeing to come here. So I suppose um, so far we've managed to speak to mud jeans who are considered the disruptors. We've spoken to a forum for the future who are kind of the organisation on the side that are willing to willing to help and um we've also spoken to coca-cola uh europe partners who are the kind of suppliers so as the as a kind of the big brand name or the big business um do you feel that there's kind of uh, more pressure on you when you put targets to, to deliver them in place because you are the ones that consumers relate to specifically yeah hi hi matt um yeah i, I would certainly agree with that we you know a huge aspect of our what we do is is our brand uh, built up a very strong and trusted brand that people relate to so um it's from a i work more specifically from a sort of construction and design and property side but i, I know for example if if we were working on a project say building a new building and um the contractor i don't know hits a electrical mains or something and uh, you know people are going to complain about the new john lewis not abc contractor so you know, and it would have been their responsibility and so on. They would be working under appropriate duty of care, but it always will come back on, on us because we're the sort of recognisable name. So we have to be aware of that and we have to make sure we manage that in, in, inappropriately. And I suppose that kind of um, paves way for, for the necessity for, for communication, not just um, relaying and setting the kind of standards you expect from suppliers and contractors in regards to buildings, but also how frequently you're, you're conversing with them as well? Yeah, agreed. Uh, so the John Lewis partnership is particularly challenging in a way because we have John Lewis, which is a department store, and, and Waitrose is a greengrocer. Both do have very different supply chains. They, they work as different divisions. So um, 
have hundreds of thousands of product lines in in each uh, overall. So, um, yeah, we need to make sure we're clear with our supply chain uh, and what we're procuring, and we have very sort of diligent procurement processes to make sure we we do sort of um, it's not just the first tier suppliers that we we have to make sure that are appropriate, but also sort of as the chain gets murkier and murkier, making sure they're not recruiting whether it's um, inappropriate labour forces or products and processes. You know, obviously, we need to, to keep watch that. Uh, but also, I think it's important, because we've got so many employees, that they understand why we do things. So there's a lot of internal campaigns go on just to explain what, what our challenges are, why do we need to conserve energy, why do we need to be sensible with how, how we manage stock, how we watch use-by dates in Waitrose, that sort of thing, because... Um, you know, everyone does have a role to play. It's a bit of a cliche thing to say, but it's true. Uh, the nice thing is, as we're all partners and sort of co-owners of the business, where we can implement measures that will reduce environmental impact, that more often than not they'll save money, and that money will can turn into profit, and that profit is shared across the partners. So, uh, you know, there's a sort of financial incentive for people to do the right thing. And um, obviously. Um business is, is essentially it's about growth it's always about trying trying to go business has never been one to rest on its laurels um we've seen i personally have seen a few cases in csr reports where and i suppose it's it's a testament to the height and transparency that these issues come to light where a an acquisition or the kind of a new a new kind of um, development building development has kind of almost tangled with with the csr targets um I mean, I imagine it's, it's quite a common thing. So when this growth happens, how do you kind of mitigate the impact it has and how do you relay that information to to the public in a way that says this is still something environmentally we are still tackling? Sure, sure. Um, so we've always been good as an organisation in terms of being transparent with our, with our reporting. We, for the past couple of years, have had an um, annual report and account that incorporates sustainability reporting as well. So that gets signed off at the highest level of the, of the business. So really focuses attention. Um, yeah, there's, there's certainly a challenge. Previously, we had an absolute target for carbon, which, which didn't work. And there's, there's a lot in, uh, on our website and other literature that explains why we've, we changed our approach. It's, it's a normalised approach now. Um, and I think... Yes, obviously, increasing growth can lead will lead to more consumption. But at the same time, the newer properties are going to be the most efficient. They are arguably they're not the ones that are causing the problem. It's the existing estate. There's a huge opportunity to address that, uh, whether it's um, you know the, the, the properties or, or the, the behaviour of the people in those properties. So, um, yeah. I, Transparency is vital to what we do, so we need to be clear of what we're doing and why and how we're doing it, and and I think we're doing a good good job of that. I'm, I'm under the impression that transparency kind of goes hand in hand with communication. You can't really get one without the other. Um, as you know, you, you own a lot of kind of buildings and, and the built environment in general, which you, I'm sure you lease a few off of landlords or property developers. Um, in terms of these conversations, the contracts you sign. Is there, is there a, a kind of balancing act between this is what we expect in terms of en- energy use and reductions? How, how do these kind of conversations go? Yep, so we, we have shell specifications. So when we're working with, with a developer, they'll be clear of what we, what we have as our sort of technical targets in terms of specific, uh, the performance spec of, of our lighting, HVAC and so on. Um, 
you know, I think with a lot of the, the bigger developers, certainly from a John Lewis side, you know, they'll all have their own sustainability teams and targets and commitments. So arguably they're, they're easier to, to sort of make sure we're doing the right thing on. Um, it's probably more of the where we have Waitrose with smaller stores with one-off more speculative developers, how we engage with them because they, they, it's fair to say they, they won't always have the same level of interest from a sustainability angle. So having a clear sort of framework, which is the responsible development framework, which sets out what, what our sort of ambition is around sustainability and, and having those conversations early on with the right members of, of the project supply chain so the development surveyors and people involved in the early stages of a deal um being clear with what we expect so yeah it's it's all about communication um but i think a lot of it is dispelling myths and and helping people understand that um you know sustainability doesn't have to cost extra Uh, we can you know as i mentioned during my talk earlier we we it can often mean a more efficient running asset or a more robust asset um, so in the long term should pay back but it's just that challenge of capital versus operational costs and, and making sure people understand um, you know people are, those who hold the purse strings may be interested in a different pot of money and it's just really trying to sell the benefits of that long term investment. Now um, I suppose um, just before I kind of let you go because um, I'm worried that the tea's probably getting cold outside um, you're, uh, you're obviously the sustainable development manager and you, you kind of pointed this out in, in your talk there's a, probably a need to avoid using the sustainability tag um, I suppose my question is it's something I've, I've seen crop up with a fair few people I speak to that there's not a need to sell something or promote something sustainable why? <laughs> yeah um, I th- well hopefully it's because it's becoming a bit more sort of business as usual um, I guess you know, I always use the example of waste or health and safety which have become a bit more mainstream Like you, you just wouldn't do a project without having a clear health and safety strategy you still have health and safety managers, uh, but I think people just understand what that term actually means, where the, the point I was hoping to make earlier was sustainability, depending on who says the word, can mean so many different things and get interpreted in different ways. So I, I'm just really mindful of the reputation environmentalists can have as being a little bit abstract, a little bit left-wing, and uh, that isn't the case at all. You know, I think it's important to um, separate the passion that we do have for the topic with you know, pragmatism and realism that being sustainable in what we do makes business sense now. So, yeah, I think it should be sustainability is just what we do as, as sort of standard practice. OK, that's, um, that's brilliant. That's kind of all I wanted to talk to you about, Phil. Again, thank you very much for your time and I'll, I'll let you be on your way. So um, it's almost time for the last session of the day at um, the Responsible Retail Conference. I've now um, been joined by Richard Quartermine, the Environmental Manager at Hammersons. Um, so Richard, um, thank you very much for, for agreeing to have this chat. If you could just start with a, like a very brief overview of Hammersons and, and how you kind of fit into the retail sphere. Yeah. Hi, uh, Hammersons um, own, manage and develop uh, retail assets both in the UK um, and in uh, Europe, so shopping centres, retail parks, um, we've probably got about 40 assets. We also um, have got a sort of joint venture with sort of value retail in terms of, uh, sort of value outlets. Um, my role as environmental manager, I sit within the sustainability team at Hammerson. My role is on the development side, so trying to not just meet 
planning obligations, building regulations, but trying to go beyond and meet best practice in the industry where possible. Uh, We like to, as a business, develop high-quality assets to attract the best tenants, the best investors, um, and achieve the best rents. So as part of that, you know, sustainable buildings is really important. So my role is to uh, work with both the internal business colleagues, but also external retailers, contractors, etc., to make sure that we are delivering these um, high-performing, low-energy, sustainable buildings. So I imagine um, it's it's fairly obvious what would make a sustainable. You, you know, high, like you said, um, you know, low-energy costs, um, extremely sustainable. You know, not wasting any heat and stuff like that. Um, so for a retailer looking to purchase a kind of uh, an outlet or lease an outlet to, to operate in, it'd be kind of obvious what they're looking for, the, the price, the performance. For for someone who is leasing that out, in terms of the ideal, I suppose, occupants, for a lack of, lack of a better word, um, do you take what they have been doing in regards to energy use into account? Because at the end of the day, you want the kind of surely the best, the best you can get in there. We, we certainly wouldn't make the distinction on a lease based on environmental performance but it is a factor so we would want to make colleagues aware if you know we don't feel that a particular retailer has got the, the best policy but um, you know we, we would then want to work with them to make sure um, you know that they are operating and managing their unit in, in sort of the best way um, but also now we're introducing fit out standards when it comes to what lighting and HVAC and materials that they put into their unit so you know we again regardless of who the tenant is we would look to actually have early conversations to make sure you know they were aware of what our requirements are you know we try and give them some hand holding help them out um, demonstrate the cost benefit so um, it's easier where the tenant has got a, um, a really robust and exemplar sustainability policy but then you know we, we try and have those conversations because I think in a lot of cases we're just not aware of what tenants are doing so um, there are some myths about who is doing what out there and certainly you know if we can find out that they're going for you know high specification energy efficient lighting then that really helps. You mentioned conversation it's been kind of the key theme of, of today really uh, you know, conversation, collaboration, tran- transparency, they all kind of go hand in hand, I suppose. Um, and in regards to um, the hand-holding aspect, what kind of common issues will you usually point people towards if they are attempting to kind of lower energy costs and, and green up their, their um, facilities? Um, I think certainly in terms of technologies, it would be lighting. Um, but I think in a way we're preaching to the converted in a number of ways now because you know better lighting means lower operational costs you know so the financial aspects is enough for retailers to do it even if you know they don't have the robust sustainability policies Um, but maybe they might need a bit of hand holding around the efficiency of their air conditioning plant etc and what the additional costs might be if there are any um, but again, you know, we consider that as all part of the negotiation, the upfront talks around establishing a deal. Uh, so if we can, you know, have the right people discussing it at the right time, i.e. as early as possible, then, you know, we can agree 
fit out specification and hopefully it's um, you know win-win for both parties. And um, we're we're about to hear later on from um, eBay. They're they're speaking at the event, and they they've kind of ignited a, a change in the way consumers um, deal with retail. It's a lot more online based. Um, have you have you found the need um, for you know build and, and facilitate for retail has gone down, or is there is there a, a change in tact? I mean, Phil, uh, when I spoke to him, was saying that you know if they if they realised that this this prediction of this change of business model was going to take off, they would have been contracts for for warehouses and buildings that they can't necessarily get out of the construction which they now would want to i think for us as a a landlord um the fear the initial fear is tenants will want less space and therefore um you know we'll see you know the less need for assets and developments etc but i think the, the there's a changing need for space so um, rather than just focus on you know, retail, we try and make our shopping centres have a leisure aspect, create a destination so people go there. Okay, they might be less sort of shopping, but there's other uses. Um, and we see that in the future, the flexibility of an asset, the adaptability, um, because people's needs will continue to change. So, yeah, perhaps there's more you know, increasing proportion of people shopping online but certainly you know retailers will need space um, as albeit showrooms there's click and collect um, there's you know that almost more services so you know if people sort of wanted to try a product and then buy it online at a later date um, or even you know people you can go along and you can get more of a personal clothing service so um you know that's all face-to-face which ultimately yeah people can just buy things online but you know it's more turns it more like service retail not just like commodities but certainly um you know i think there's there's certainly food and beverage is another area which is expanding it's part of the leisure but certainly you know we have extensions to shopping centers now that are purely food and beverage led um that's what people, you know, want to spend the money on, as well as, sort of, uh, you know, buying clothes um, and food, etc. So it's almost it's almost as if the, the business model that's kind of tweaking how retail is done is is also um, opening up other other avenues for for this as well. Um, and I suppose you mentioned food and restaurants. Um, uh, Heathrow, um, the airport, um, they kind of announced earlier this year that all kind of food and restaurants within within the premises would have to comply to um, sustainability standard framework that they've they've put in place do you ever envision a time where you will solely be kind of leasing out these places and have your own kind of external sustainable like sourcing aspects to it if if you get what i mean for for the food and beverage place uh i don't i don't think we well no actually I, i i i do think there might come a time that we will almost come up with a, a, a list of sort of sourcing to avoid if it's unethical etc um, rather than you must use products from certain locations it'll be ones to avoid and so you know we will enshrine that in our policies and leasing documents so you know hazardous materials modern slavery are examples where you know we would sort of have that written into sort of leases but again you know we we can look at where products come from whether it's sort of food or non-food 
because I think you know there'd be probably most retailers doing that anyway but we just want to make sure that all retailers are doing it so it's better for the industry that we you know set those requirements um, and I think yeah we probably yeah may not happen in the next couple of years but it may be more long term but certainly I think that's the way the industry is going generally I mean it's always good to have your kind of eyes on, on the horizon for stuff like that anyway but um Richard I'm, I'm worried I've, I've probably kept you too long uh, there's a lot of people I know you want to go speak to so um thank you again very much for your time it's been a pleasure talking to you wonderful thank you wow great stuff there then um which was your favorite Matt um that's a yeah that's a good question it was it was really interesting talking to Joe Francis from Coca-Cola mm. because it kind of it kind of gave me an insight into the world of of almost a new company that's mm. trying to set out a sustainability strategy through not just through the years but f- like to to be a longevity mm. at a sense of that and the way he kind of talked about science-based targets and SDGs was something he was very very on on course about but um Bert Van Son is an extremely interesting man to yeah. speak to regardless and the movement and the kind of excitement surrounding his model, mm. I think is going to take off very, very soon. Mm-hmm. And we managed to have a little chat about London Fashion Week as well and about how there's a, there's almost a place for big corporate events like yeah. that or big, big, you know, nationwide events where the whole world or at least the whole nation kind of views in and said, that's where the next kind of realm of corporate sustainability will lie, advertising the issues and the solutions in those kind of scenarios. Mm. Was Bert Van Son suited up? Uh, he he was he wasn't the uh, the description you gave me. There's no there's no hoodies. He was obviously he was obviously wearing wearing the jeans, flying yeah. the flag, so yeah. to speak. But yeah, he was he was looking very dapper. Oh, I quite he, like it. Yeah, I quite admire. It. I mean, I, I went to an event. He was speaking at a few months ago. Actually, I can't remember where it was. Somewhere like Leeds or Manchester. Um, and yeah, I remember just he was on my table, and he was just wearing a hoodie and jeans, and everyone. It was quite a sort of suity event. Um, so I assumed that he was sort of like an AV guy or one of the guys who was sort of managing the, the some of the stuff. And then I, they sort of introduced him and he got up from next to me and I realised I'd made a, missed a kind of 10 or 15 minute opportunity to have a chat with him. But um, no, quite an innovative mm-hmm. character and company. Um, so uh, we are now nearing the end of this mammoth two-parter for this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Um, But no episode would be complete without the sustainability success story. And George, this is your chance to shine once more. Haven't heard from you since part one. Um, So usually at this point you pick out a success story of the week, which I guess leaves us all feeling a bit more positive about the global climate or sustainability movements. Um, But I think I can guess this week's one, considering the news you've been writing this afternoon. Does it involve Paris? It certainly does, Luke. And the signing of the Paris Agreement. Um, So I've been upstairs... Um, well, this is the signing of the Paris Agreement and the ratification of it from EU. Mm. Um, but I've been upstairs preparing some of the material for this podcast, actually. So uh, I've kind of missed what's happened. What's gone, what's gone on? Mm. So, sustainability success story of the week, it truly is. This is a remarkable achievement. Mm. Uh, so the EU today ratified Paris. That's 28 countries, which is staggering that they've all come together and got on board with this. So 28 countries representing, I think it's 12% of uh, global emissions. Um, bringing the the total amount up to 48% now, I think. Uh, bearing in mind, for listeners who don't know, uh, for this to be ratified uh, completely, we need to pass the threshold of 55%. Yeah. So we've come a long way in just, just under a month. I think a month ago, US and China hadn't signed it. They represent 40% of wow. emissions. 
So it, I've been working away at my calculations. So <laughs> a, a month ago we had less than ten percent. Oh really? And now we're we're nearly there. We're at the fifty percent barrier almost. Wow. So that is remarkable. I mean, yeah. thinking back to COP twenty one and then kind of the sort of the kind of quiet after the storm, if you like. There was a. Um, I, I, there was so much momentum at the event that then the kind of the lack of momentum in the few months after there's it kind a, there's of, a lull wasn't there yeah, yeah it sort of got me thinking okay what's actually going to happen here is this one of their moments almost like a Brexit if you like kind of a really big build up to it then it happens and it's kind of like is this actually going to happen what's going on here um, not that I really want Brexit to speed up but um, yeah and so it's really good to have seen I suppose you know US China was so significant mm. it's really got the kind of ball rolling um, and obviously the UK to follow by the end of this year that's it now pressure um, is building but I'm looking forward to the uh, I'm looking forward to the little mad scrabble for the country that wants to be the one that gets us over the <laughs> yeah. double threshold yeah. it's all going to get very tactical now I think the ratification process I wonder if that's what Theresa oh look at that Mozambique's done it that's another 0.2% <laughs> let's, let's just wait let's just wait because that's going to be that's going to be a pub quiz question down the line yeah yeah it's mm. going to be a big day isn't it when that when it becomes kind of formally ratified Ratified. Amazing day. Um, yeah, okay, well, uh, fantastic way to end part two of this week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered. Um, join us in a few moments then for part three. <laughs> no, I am just kidding. Um, Matt and George, I think our listeners have probably heard just about enough of us for one week. Um, but we will be back again next week for episode 12 of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. It's worth reminding you again that it is now available on iTunes. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered. Um, and you are still able to listen to them all for free directly on the ed.net website. Anyway, until next time, it's goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from George. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.